This is a Federal News Network podcast. As you just heard, Atlantic Diving Supply, ADS, has been a successful federal contractor, but one that has attracted controversy, mainly over whether it is in fact a small business in winning positions on contract vehicles set aside for small business. For what the company itself has to say, I spoke with its general counsel, Adam Casagrande. Here's an excerpt from that interview, starting with that very question. Is it a small business with respect to SBA size standards for distributors such as yourself? Yes, with that final statement being the main component of it. That's something that I think a lot of people misunderstand or maybe don't think about. A business is not small or other than small as a whole. It's based on the contract itself. So on any given contract, there is potentially a different version of what would be considered small or not. For instance, some contracts, um, and they're, they're called NAICS codes, N-A-I-C-S, which is an acronym. I'm not going to pretend that everyone pronounces it differently. I believe it's pronounced NAICS. But the NAICS code usually determines what industry that contract is for. And then based on that, what's considered small for that industry. I don't want to pretend to know. I mean, there are hundreds of NAICS codes depending on the industry. The SBA issues those NAICS codes. I think it's on a five-year rolling basis. They update them. And so for a particular contract, if it has a NAICS code that says you have to have under $100,000 in revenue to be small, we wouldn't be small under that contract and couldn't bid as a small business under that. Whereas other contracts are based on employee count. And some of the NAICS codes are 200 employees, you're considered small. Some of the NAICS codes go up to, I think, 1,500 or even 1,750 at this point. For us, though, and that's why I targeted on your last statement there, as a distributor, there's something called the non-manufacturer rule. The non-manufacturer rule was codified in the Small Business Act. I believe it was amended in 1988, which says if you are a non-manufacturer, I'm paraphrasing, if you are a non-manufacturer, if you have 500 or fewer employees, you are considered a small business. And so for the contracts that we hold, where we bid as a small business, and we have contracts that are unrestricted and they're not for small businesses, and we have those as well. But for those that we have bid on that are small business contracts, that is the governing number for us. That is what's make us considered small, having under 500 employees. And there's a definition in the federal acquisition regulations and the FAR and the SBA has has you know, there, there's a lot of case law out there and, and there's many different ways to count it. But ultimately, what is counted is the number of full-time, part-time or temporary employees on a rolling 12-month basis and the affiliates of the company. And when you add up those numbers of employees and you do that average over the 12-month rolling basis, if you have 500 or fewer employees, you qualify as a small business under the non-manufacturer rule. And we have and we always have had under 500 employees under that definition. We're speaking with Adam Casagrande. He's general counsel at Atlantic Diving Supply. And you go by ADS, actually, not by the words. Yeah, and- we trade as ADS. Um, we started as a small diving company selling stuff to the uh, local seals here at Dam Neck. And that's the origin of the company. And over time, the company has grown out of sure. just selling diving supplies. And we've now expanded to the point that we go by ADS, Inc., yes. Now, in 2017, the company did pay, and this has been reported widely, a $16 million settlement. What was that all about, and what does the company say about that settlement, in which I think the government said that it did not disprove charges of fraud and bribery, but nevertheless there was a settlement, and I guess that question may not have been resolved. 
Well, I, I would disagree that it wasn't resolved. We did resolve it with the government and there was no finding of any of the allegations. What that settlement is a result of is there was something called a key TAM suit or under the False Claims Act. and A whistleblower. I, Yes, exactly. A whistleblower suit and a whistleblower suit was filed by a Delaware Shell Corporation with the identities of the individuals unknown. It was purposefully hidden who they were. And from what we understand, and frankly, we still don't know, it was filed sometime back in the 2010 to 2012 time period. We were not even aware it was filed or we were under investigation for a long period of time. And ultimately, that complaint, they're, they're filed under seal, so you're not aware of it at the time. Ultimately, we received what's the, I guess, the equivalent of a subpoena from the government asking for records, and that's when we became aware of it. At the time that we were issued, the, it's called a CID, the subpoena. At that point, with the number of documents that we were required to provide, the review, and everything else in between, our legal fees were stretching the ability of our ability to continue to operate as a business. I joined the company in 2016. And one of the first things I did when I joined the company was I immediately met with the Department of Justice to talk about what this suit was about, what was alleged against us, and how is it something that can be resolved. And frankly, I said to them, if we have people in this company that are doing something wrong, please tell me and I will hand them to you. We interacted with the Department of Justice on the civil side. That's an important distinction to make. It was a civil claim. It was not a criminal claim at all. They were very cooperative with us, and we had very productive discussions. And we reached a point where we made the decision, and I understand that this sounds like a lot of money when I use the words a nuisance settlement, but when you get to the point when you're paying millions of dollars a year to lawyers to respond to a subpoena, when the Department of Justice offered us the ability to settle for $16 million over a five-year period, that actually ended up being less than what we were paying our lawyers a year. And so for us, it was a fairly easy business decision to make, while unpalatable, to settle the case. I, I've been practicing for 20 years. I've settled a number of cases for clients. I was a trial lawyer before coming to ADS. And you often have to do that in order to keep your business running. And we were getting to the point where we were not going to be able to continue running as a business if we were going to be paying those fees. I mean, the allegations in the suit were far ranging. I think we were accused of every single type of government procurement fraud or other type of crime that exists. In my discussions with the Department of Justice, they were not even pursuing almost every single one of them in their investigation. They thought that they're spurious. And I'll go out on a limb to say that I got a couple of eye rolls from them when I would discuss certain of the claims. And they said, yeah, we're not even looking at that. And it really came down to the allegations of whether we were a small business or not. And when we resolved it, I asked them, do you have evidence that we're not a small business or that we weren't a small business in the past? And I was told, we don't have that evidence yet, but we're going to keep looking. And that's when we reached the decision after years of paying those legal fees to settle the case. Um, so we settled that case, as you mentioned. But I just do want to point out that in the meantime, not only were we continuing to receive awards daily, we were continuing to receive contracts from various contracting officers throughout the government. I named all of the agencies before that were giving it to us. And it's important to note that 
those allegations at this time that we settled were out there. They were in the public domain and they were known by the U.S. government. It is a contracting officer's duty to determine whether a contractor, us in this case, is presently responsible before awarding any contract or any task order to that contractor. And they have to do that knowing if there are allegations out there about this. And I will tell you that we received during this time period thousands of contracts and task orders from contracting officers throughout the federal government, both DOD and otherwise, including all of those agencies I mentioned, with full knowledge of the allegations against us. I'd also like to mention, and and I apologize if I'm getting ahead of myself, we were up for an award of one of our larger contracts from DLA. It's the, uh, we call it the TLS FES, Fire and Emergency Services contract. And DLA, to their credit, in an abundance of caution, awarded it to us along with, as I said before, several competitors, but at the same time, filed a protest itself to determine whether our size status was appropriate in order to be awarded that contract. And that protest was filed with SBA, and the SBA conducted an almost year-long audit and investigation of our company that ended in 2019, where the SBA found unequivocally that we were and always have been a small business under that 500 employee standard that I mentioned to you earlier. I also asked whether affiliate companies or companies also owned by the majority stockholder in ADS somehow affect its size. There are a few companies that he owns that have a small number of people that we are affiliated with under the SBA affiliation rules. We disclose that to the SBA every time and everything that we told the SBA was correct and they found no other business interests otherwise. And that's the case. Adam Casagrande is general counsel at Atlantic Diving Supply or ADS. There is much more to the interview. We'll post it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is going to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic 
and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that's at the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I have, I have just one, but I would tell you the one person who 
uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most. And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and the the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of of being a leader, uh, and 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 I, I I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants, and I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the. Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. 
But thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Looking for holiday gifts for less? Come to Ross and say yeah to making your dollar stretch on name brand toys, clothes, and gifts. Get the gift of savings this holiday from Ross. Yes for less. A financial plan isn't just about money. It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin.